You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 1, Episode 1, The Australian University Accord with Andrew Norton. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the very first episode of The World of Higher Education. This podcast is dedicated to understanding trends in higher education right across the globe. Each week, we will have guests from different countries discussing news and perspectives from their neck of the woods. Debates in higher education are remarkably similar the world over, but different structures, histories, and national values mean that approaches and solutions can vary a lot. This podcast and my conversation with guests is built on a simple premise. We can all learn from each other. The world of higher education is designed for academics and administrators who are curious how other countries approach post-secondary issues, policy wonks who want to gain insights into other higher education systems, and students who may just be thinking about studying in other countries. Our hope is it won't matter what you do or where you live now, there'll be something new for you in every episode. Today's guest is Andrew Norton, Professor in the Practice of Higher Education at the Centre for Social Research and Methods at the Australian National University. Andrew's been a longtime observer of higher education scene in, in Australia. For many years, he wrote the Mapping of Higher Education in Australia report, which was the inspiration for Higher Education Strategy Associates' State of Post-Secondary Education in Canada. I'm very pleased that Andrew could be the inaugural guest for this podcast. In this episode, Andrew and I talk about the new Labour government's Universities Accord. In a characteristically Australian form of policymaking, the government has created a commission of non-politicians to come up with answers to some key questions facing the sector. A lot of what this accord is about is getting rid of a decade or so of Liberal Party policy, in particular, the Job Ready Graduates Program, which, among other things, radically increased the cost of studying in the humanities relative to other fields of study in an attempt to dissuade students from enrolling in these fields. But it will tackle other issues, like the casual employment in the sector. In the past, these kinds of commissions have made momentous policy changes, such as ushering in a tiered fee system and creating a demand-driven system of public funding. I have my doubts that this one will be anywhere near as momentous. The system has gone about as far as it can in terms of extracting money from domestic students. No one's going to turn off the tap on international students anytime soon. And government isn't flush enough with money to create a, a major revolution in terms of public funding. But as Andrew points out, there is still room for a lot of surprises here. Unlike previous commissions, this one isn't led by sector experts, but rather by worthy citizens. And there are a lot of issues in the commission's writ beyond finances. Australia's higher education system is more prone to large-scale innovation than that of other countries. That's what makes it such a fascinating case study and such a great place for this podcast to start its journey around the world. Have a listen. Andrew, hello. Hi, Alex. So uh, the Universities Accord is sort of an outsourcing of policy making, it seems to me. It's uh, something that happens relatively frequently in Australian higher education. There's been the, the Bradley Review, the West Review. For many years, they seem to come about every four or five years, less so uh, when the Liberals were in power, I think, uh, under the last government. And the way they seem to work is that the party in control has some general preferences about policy, but no specific ideas. So they hand it off to an external body. Tell us, I mean, why, is this, why does Australia make policy like this? That seems fairly um, unique uh, in a global perspective. I think the British might do it a bit as well, which might be where we get it from. Look, I think, as you indicated, particularly if the government is starting with only vague intentions, this is actually a useful way of delaying a decision. And also, I think it's 
it has some policy and political advantages in that if the government starts doing this work itself and some of it gets out, there'll be all this uh, pressure to rule out things people don't like or there'll be expectations raised that won't finally be met. Whereas with these you know, semi-independent reviews, uh, the review comes up with an idea and the government can decide to accept it or not. And until they accept it, it's just a recommendation and not a political commitment. I also think there's probably you know, real policy benefits in it because you know, there's you know, limited expertise and resources within government. And this brings in you know, external experts who can bring insight into the issues the government is concerned with. And they're not completely separate from government in the sense there's always a secretariat in the Department of Education, which does varying amounts of work, but nevertheless, there is that interaction. And I think a good review panel chairperson or maybe other panel members will probably be in reasonably regular contact with the minister or the minister's office because you don't want to have recommendations the government is just going to totally reject. And therefore, I think, you know, on the other hand, you want to be a little bit ambitious, maybe do things that won't be immediately possible. But if it's just going to be totally thrown away by the government, it's probably you're wasting your time on the review. So uh, there are politics in this, but I think also with some you know, real expertise added. And is the assumption then that the government will more or less accept the results when it comes out? I mean, are they expected to take 100% of the advice, 80%, 60%? What's the, what's the track record? Uh, so for the Bradley report that you mentioned earlier, which led to the demand-driven system, I'd say it was probably about 80% of some of the details didn't get through. But that, that government also, you know, I had a review of the uh, funding rates, the so-called base funding review, where basically none of the recommendations were accepted. Uh, a review that I was involved with, a review of the demand-driven system about 10 years ago, where the government did actually accept maybe 75% of the recommendations, but then couldn't get any of them through the parliament. So in the end, it, it went nowhere. So on the whole, I think if the, the review panel knows what it's doing, it should be able to get at least some of it accepted by the government of the day. But whether they can get it all through the parliament, obviously, is another question. Right. So uh, now that being said, the, the body that's set up to give these recommendations, they aren't given tabula rasa, they are given a steer by the government. And it seemed to me that when this group was set up, the Labour government was giving it a pretty hard steer about undoing uh, some of the work of the previous government, which had been in power for, uh, I guess, nine years before that. What's the mandate exactly of this group? And what are the key areas in which it's expected to provide advice? Look, one of the things I think is a little bit unusual about this review is that apart from clearly wanting targets for attainment and for increased participation by various disadvantaged groups, uh, the terms of reference are very general, covering, you know, students, research, equity, uh, workplace relations, governance, virtually everything is in the pot. And without too many clear steers about exactly what they want, also often by the people they appoint, <laughs> That in itself sometimes gives a signal as to where they want to go. Whereas, except for one serving vice-chancellor on the current Accord panel, none of them have really had major public roles in higher education policy in recent times. And therefore, I am probably less clear about where this one might be going than possibly any review we've had in, in recent times. But I think going back to the issue of what it might do with the previous government, so the central thing probably 
that won't last under a Labor government is some of the student contributions, that's our fees for government-supported students, in the so-called job-ready graduates package, where they cut the public subsidy, uh, increased student contributions, which is, has been done before, but then decided to try and steer student preferences to courses the government likes, the job-ready courses, by cutting the student contributions even compared to the past for those fields, and then greatly increasing the student contributions in the fields I think are not leading to jobs. So for example, to, cost, to study humanities in Australia now costs more than twice as much as it did back in 2020. So that's a, a very clear price signal that students shouldn't do arts, for example. Right. And now you've written about the Job Ready Graduates Program. I think the phrase that stuck with me was overwhelmingly failed on all objectives. What do you mean by that? What have the, the impacts been of the program? So that, that was from a headline that was maybe a bit of a sub-editor exaggeration of the story. But, but I think more or less, uh, that's right. So during the Job Ready Graduates debate, myself and others were arguing that the student contribution charges were unlikely to have a major impact on student preferences. And the reason for that is that you know people choose courses and careers based on their interests. These interests are kind of aspect of personality. They're not greatly swayed by price discounts or price penalties. However, people have multiple interests and within their range of interests, it is possible that financial factors and probably it's almost certain that financial factors play a role for some people. But even then, it's going to be their, what they think are their employment and salary prospects after graduation and not the actual cost of study in the first place. So even though there are some big differences and potentially tens of thousands of dollars in the costs of a course, uh, that is still relatively small as a percentage of lifetime earnings. And you know the difference between going straight into a full-time job or not after graduation could easily kind of wipe out that $30,000 in, in your first year or two. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. Back after this. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, valuation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. So, Andrew, Australia has historically relied on a mix of government funding, which has just been below the OECD average. And add to that, as we were just talking about a time delayed domestic student financing through the HEC system and fees, which are pretty similar to those we have in Canada, but high compared to many other countries. And then you've, you've got some international student fees as well. So what are the options for moving forward uh, with respect to funding universities? Is this commission likely to alter the mix very much or is it more likely to tinker around the edges? Look, I think at the aggregate mix of public and private uh, expenditure, I don't think it will radically change things. I think you know, some of your comparative work has shown that you know, if you look around the world, you, you tend to see that countries of kind of mid-range sort of tax takes of GDP like Australia or Canada or the US tend to have you know, some student charges, whereas the higher taxing countries in Europe tend to have uh, free or very cheap higher education. 
because there are no radical plans to totally change the Australian, Australian tax system and increase taxation in Australia, I can't see how we can move to a totally different European-style system. But I would expect the, the Accord to recommend you know, some narrowing of the gap between the student contributions and probably different principles for setting it. What about international students? I mean, that's that's been a very big source of income for many, many years. And it was one that was cut off fairly drastically um, or reduced fairly drastically during COVID. And I remember participating, I think we, we might both might have been at that uh, discussion in a couple of years ago where, you know, the universities were saying, oh, we realize our, our business model was wrong. It was too reliant on international student uh, income. But can the country really walk away from that money or is it or are you going to go back to the previous uh, status quo in terms of trying to get other people's citizens to pay for post-secondary education? I think we're already headed back to the old system. You know, visa applications are reasonably strong. Universities are desperately trying to recruit as many as possible. Uh, the current government's already extended some of the visas. So the, you can you can apply for this 485 visa and it will work for two or more years in Australia after you finish. That's already been extended for many students. It's going to be extended again if you're in certain fields which are allegedly in skill shortage. And the minister's making all these positive noises about being able to stay permanently which I think are probably quite misleading because you can't mix a, an uncapped temporary migration program like the student visa and a permanently capped uh, permanent residence program. We're about five years ahead of you on that one. Yeah. I think what you'll find out you'll be able to learn from Canada on that one because we're a long way down that down that road already. Yeah. So I guess this is a, to me, this is a big social policy issue that we've got large numbers yeah. of temporary migrants often quite exploited in the labor market. We want to have an ethical business model here, not just one that relies on taking their cash and not delivering on their expectations. But will the university's accord pronounce on that piece or is it likely to leave it alone? Because as you said, the government's already made some policy in that direction. Yeah, I suspect it will. There's a separate migration view running at the same time. And I suspect in the end, the the, the education minister is not going to have the final say on these migration issues. Uh, interesting. Okay. Well, look, funding is a big part of the focus of the university's accord, but the terms of reference include a slew of other issues. So boosting uh, First Nations enrollment, the research system, workplace relations. Uh, among these areas, where, if anywhere, do you think we can expect some new bold thinking or new recommendations well, the mention of workplace relations in the terms of reference was interesting because this has not been in the terms of reference for recent reviews, but there have been a lot of scandals in Australia where universities have been caught underpaying their casual staff, I think mostly due to error rather than the wage theft claimed by the union, but nevertheless, they have been paying incorrectly. And we have the particularly the junior academic workforce employed under probably the worst conditions that graduates have in the labor market and so i think there's now a real pressure to change that model but i think this actually flows straight back into the funding issues because i think the reason this problem has developed in australia to the extent that it has is because over the last 30 years we've completely separated out teaching and research funding and distributed them on different criteria which has made it increasingly difficult to maintain this norm of an academic job that involves both teaching and research. And that's why we've seen all these fixed-term research contracts and all these casualised teaching contracts to try and have these staff arrangements reflect the funding arrangements. 
I think we need to move to a academic workforce, which is a much larger percent of people with ongoing teaching contracts. But that is very hard culturally and industrially. That is, the union doesn't like it. Uh, all these people have spent years doing PhDs, want a job that involves research, don't necessarily like teaching as much. Again, this is something which I think is going to be very, very hard for the Accord panel to deal with because it's kind of industrial issues that are not really within the scope of the education minister and even industrial relations law can only do so much to change this. Interesting. And yet that's been an area, you know, arguably the area of Australia's greatest success in the past two decades, uh, just the, the huge rise uh, up the rankings of Australian universities um, and their increasing research intensiveness. So, there, but there's not a thing, there's no thought that that could be reversed, is there? I mean, it's about how to make it work better, not uh, not to try and undo that. I think partly it's done that by employing most of these casuals at the lowest academic level, which has maximised the profits from teaching, which in turn has helped finance a, a research boom that kind of really only fizzled out in the last couple of years, but at a massively higher level than it had been before, which, you know, as you noted, has caused a number of the universities to really shoot up the rankings compared to where they were when the rankings started about 20 years ago. Mm hmm well, that's all we have time for today. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. And I hope we can speak again when the accord's finished. Thanks, Alex. Okay. Just remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and you, our listeners, for your interest in the World Higher Education Podcast. If you have any feedback on the program, please get in touch with us by email at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. That's podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us again next week when our guest Dave Guerin will be beaming in from Wellington to discuss higher education legacy of New Zealand's recently retired Prime Minister, Yacinda Ardern. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Music.